This is episode 15 of Cinescope, and welcome to the real world. Welcome to Cinescope, where our goal is not to criticize or to assign ratings, but rather to celebrate the movies we love, exploring story, characters, music, and relevance to the world around us. I'm your host, Chad Hopkins, and returning to the podcast today is TJ Draper to talk about one of his favorite films, The Matrix. TJ, I'm so glad to have you back. I'm glad to be back, Chad. It is really good to be here. This will be my third appearance on this show, second official appearance. Yes, because, of course, you were on the test episode where we were sort of just gauging audience reception and whether we wanted to continue doing it. And that was fun and everybody liked it. So then you were back a couple episodes later to do Wrath of Khan. And so we're continuing this theme of you introducing me to movies. This is a movie that you've been trying to get me to watch for three years now. Indeed, I have. I've been shocked and appalled, Chad, that you have never seen The Matrix <laughs> before. So when did you, you you've watched it now. I have watched it, and we're about to talk about it. But first, how about you tell us a little bit uh, what's up with you? Because there's some exciting things that have been happening on your end of the uh, end of podcasting, I should say. Well, I am coming to you for the first time on this show from my podcast studio, which which is, sounds okay. Um, I've got a lot of acoustic foam in here uh, trying to deaden the very lively, unpleasantly live sound that normally is in this little closet. Um, but that's not really that exciting. I just thought I'd throw that in there. <laughs> <laughs> Had I launched Night Owl the first time I was on the show? I don't remember. I don't think so. Okay, so Joe Darnell and I launched a podcast network called Night Owl. It's at nightowl.fm. And the show that I'm primarily doing on Night Owl is a show called Retake. Um, and it is the spiritual successor of Movie Bite. Uh, if anybody had listened to the Movie Bite podcast before, then Retake is the spiritual successor. If not, then you should go listen to the back catalog because it's all still out there at moviebite.com. But uh, yeah, Retake and Night Owl, and uh, we're trying to get that show, or I'm sorry, get that network launched and, and going. Uh, part of the problem is Night Owl is like a thing that we do uh as Night Owl uh, kind of represents the name, is it's what we do on the side. Uh, so it's kind of hard to find time to get everything together and, and stuff. But slowly but surely, we're we're getting it out there into the world. Right, burning the midnight oil to figure it out whenever you're, you're not doing your other stuff during the day. Exactly, yes. I've made one appearance so far. Uh, we talked about Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. together. Uh, and I still haven't caught you? up on that since. Yes. Uh, well, was that a... you? I did. Oh, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I sound like a different person on that because we recorded that at nine in the morning rather than nine at night like we are now. But Right, right. You're much more lively tonight. <laughs> yes, I, I am. But it, it was still a good discussion. And uh, I'm looking forward to participating more in Retake. And then, of course, I'm glad to have you back and you'll be back in the future, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes. So that being said, just a couple of usual reminders before we move into the discussion. Please go to iTunes, rate and review the show. And also, even if you don't use iTunes as your primary podcast point alliteration for you guys, just subscribing to the podcast would be a big help. Uh, it'll help new people find the show and maybe boost us enough to reach the new and noteworthy page. That'd be really cool. Um, and it all starts with all of you participating and rating and reviewing the show. Yeah, I can't stress that enough. So please, please, please just consider taking two minutes of your day, if even that, and uh, helping us out. Thank you. Now, TJ, I'm sure you are so ready to talk about The Matrix. 
I am. I um, when it when it comes to films that I love, and particularly films that I think a lot of, sometimes I have a little bit of trepidation. Like, am I gonna am I gonna do right by the film and, and that sort of thing? And every time I've talked about or written about the Matrix, I felt that way. And tonight, I was just gathering my notes furiously, going, Ah, I want to make sure I hit all the right points. And I love this film so much. It uh, at various times, I have called it my favorite film. Um, and I think, uh, having watched it again, it's actually been a couple of years since I watched it. I'd, I'd finally, cause I used to watch it like every year or more. And I finally got to a point where I was saturated enough with it that I haven't watched it in a couple of years. But then I watched it again last night. I'm like, oh man, this is such a great film. So yes, I'm, I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm ready to go, Chad. I'm ready to go. Awesome. Well, before we officially kick off, let's talk about some stats. So this movie was released on March 31st of 1999 and was directed by the Wachowskis, who also went on to direct The Matrix Reloaded, The Matrix Revolutions, Speed Racer, Cloud Atlas, Jupiter Ascending, and the Netflix series Sense8. It was also written by the Wachowskis, and the music is by Don Davis, who went on to score the rest of the trilogy, also did the Animatrix, which the Wachowskis were not necessarily involved in, and then he also scored Jurassic Park 3 following John Williams' departure after Jurassic Park 2. This movie stars Keanu Reeves, Lawrence Fishburne, Hugo Weaving, Carrie Ann Moss, Joe Pantoliano, and Gloria Foster. So TJ, you have more to say about a first experience than I do because my first experience was last night. So let's hear about it. What what was your first experience with this movie? Okay, so um, I know I've talked about this before on various podcasts and various places, but I I sort of had a reawakening into films uh, in my early twenties, um, and this is one that my then fiance introduced me to. My wife Rachel, um, she introduced this film to me. Uh, it was, so I would have been, uh, 24, uh, when that happened. So I didn't get to see it in the theater. Uh, so this would have been around, uh, let's see, 24, <laughs> I got to do some math here. Uh, 2004, this would have been 2004. And, uh, so I didn't get to see it in the theater because I just really wasn't into movies before that, you know, before that time. And I sat down, I watched it with her and she kept telling me how mind blowing this film was and just, you know, just awesome and, and all these cool things and just cool concepts and and uh, boy was she right I mean I just I sat and I watched it and I it's hard to recall your my exact feelings at the time because it's become so ingrained in me but I know that that after the first act with the the big reveal at the end of the first act I was kind of blown away of just wow just how great of a reveal that everything was and how well it was put together. Like, like there's hints and you can certainly look back at the whole first act and go, Oh, all the pieces fall into place, but it just, it, it's just such a, a mind blowing concept. And, and maybe that's because again, I know that this concept is out there in other films, this type of thing, this virtual reality thing. And, and, you know, you've got stuff like Tron where people, you know, thing, or at least computer programs were sentient and these sorts of things. But to me at the time, it was just, mind-blowing. And it was the sort of film where I knew I was going to have to watch it several more times in order to really wrap my head around all the concepts that were being uh, put out, put into my head, you know, and put onto the screen. Uh, so that was kind of my first experience back in 2004 with, with the film. So I, I didn't, and I've never seen it on the big screen, which is one of my biggest regrets about uh, about uh, having seen it, at, uh, you know, just on a regular old TV. And, and at the time, there wasn't even Blu-ray. So it was just standard definition DVD. So that was my first experience, Chad. Cool. Well, maybe in the next uh, year or two, uh, when we get to the 20th anniversary, they'll have some sort of theatrical release. That would be pretty cool. I would drive a long way to see that. <laughs> <laughs> I, I would definitely prioritize that as well, because uh, the big screen is what movies were made to be watched on. So anytime I get the chance to see a favorite, then I jump at it. 
Um, so for me, I was seven years old when this came out. I was not even close to a proper age for seeing this. No, yeah, it is R-rated. Yeah, and for some reason, I just, I don't know. I, it's not that I had a lack of interest in watching this movie. I mean, even for the past few years, it's it's just, I knew this was one of your favorites and I knew I needed to see it at some point, but I just hadn't sought it out. And so that being said, growing up, I was familiar with a lot of sort of the tropes. I mean, tropes isn't exactly the right word, but I, I knew of the red and the blue pill and I knew about like the slow-mo bullet dodge. There, There are things that the matrix is known for whether you've seen it or not. And th those are the two particular things. And there's probably some others you can name too. Maybe welcome to the real world. Yeah. There's just so much stuff from it that has been inculcated into our common pop culture. Yeah. It's really impressive to see how it has influenced filmmaking now. I mean, slow motion was, I wouldn't say it wasn't ever used, but it had never been used in this way. Right. And seeing the bullet effects as time sort of slows down as Neo bends backwards or uh, just just cool effects like that wall running or whatever it was, this was sort of a new approach to slow motion as a filmmaking technique. Well, yeah, it, it was sort of subversive. Like the way they use slow motion was uh, when you're in the middle of this big jam-packed action sequence, it's just the opposite of what you would expect. It's like, we're going to slow things down and we're going to show you what's called, you know, they pioneered a technique called bullet time where they whip around you in really slow motion. So it feels like you're panning around somebody really quickly um, and they pioneered that technique. And and, and uh, my understanding is like, I, I guess technically it's CGI, but like they had, they staged cameras in a semicircle around the actors and then stitched, stitched those cameras together to create that, that panning technique around these actors. Like it was really just fantastic. Like these were, these were just strange things to do that worked really well for the type of film that it was. And, and you know, like I said, that pioneered these techniques. Right. And of course, now you see it in a lot of films nowadays. And of course, it's, yes. it's just cool to go back and see the original, the thing that inspired it all. Mm -hmm. And so even though I was familiar with those couple of things, I really had no idea what to expect from this movie. I, I, I only knew vague things about the story. I knew the character names probably because everybody knows Neo, Morpheus, Agent Smith. Right. But right. that was it. And so I... I Sat down to watch it last night, and I had a really good time watching this movie. I was glad it wasn't super long. I was glad it wasn't super short. I thought it was a great length. I thought it was well-paced. And right off the bat, it sort of brings you in and takes you on this ride, and it doesn't really let up. But that's not saying that it doesn't give you its time to slow down and maybe build characters a little bit, too, because I would say I'm also surprised with some of the depth that is in this movie. It's not just a fun action flick. It it does have some depth to it. So that being said, let's move on. Let's talk about story just a little bit. So what are some parts of the story that you like, TJ? Well, you touched on like how the film opens, and that's one of my favorite things about this film. Like everything about it's favorite, but like it opens in a way that yeah, I mean you get to some action pretty quickly, but it it opens in this way that really brings you into this world, and it's very masterful. And still, it just like introduces Trinity to us. Like that's one of the first things that we get, and and even when we don't see her right away, they're talk basically talking about her. Like you know, it's like no, Lieutenant, your men are already dead. Man, Trinity is just such a a badass in the beginning of this film, and I, I just. I just love this introduction into this world. And it does kind of throw us into the action, but it does so kind of slow. Like the, the first several shots of this film are just these slow panning, you know, these old cars kind of driving up to the old building. And we were dollying into this old doorway and there's a graffiti on the walls. And it's really fantastic. I just I love the way this film opens. Right. And they, they give you that action without explaining any of it. Oh, yeah. Later yeah, in the yeah. film, we get the same sort of action scenes, but we know the source of the slow motion. We know how these people are able to run on walls and 
do these extraordinary feats. But here at the beginning, it's just like, whoa, what's she doing? She just did this and she did that. Wow, she's on the wall now and she just jumped across this building. And it, it's really cool that we're given that without context to begin with. So we're left to wonder, how is she able to do that? And that just makes the reveal later when we learn how she's able to do that that much sweeter. Yeah, I completely agree. In the film, it, it it's one of those films where I feel like um, a lot of uh, a lot of more modern films or just films in general they fail to do this. This film doesn't try to explain every little thing to you. It expects you to be a big boy or a big girl and to think for yourself and to put the pieces of the story together. You know, it's not, it's not going to sit here and explain every little detail to you. This is the sort of thing that makes it rewarding to watch on repeat viewings. I mean, there was even things last night that I noticed. Uh, was it last night or the night before? Uh, no, it was last night. So there's even things that I noticed last night that I had never noticed before. Just some some setup stuff that was paid off later throughout the film. The 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 scene where ev- I mean, obviously everybody knows the white rabbit, right? Follow you know follow the white rabbit. But like there was stuff being set up there. You know, you just need to sounds Neo like you need to unplug. You know, and and, and uh, <laughs> it's, uh, you're you're my savior, man. You're my own personal Jesus Christ. You know, and 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 you're sitting here setting these things up that are being paid off throughout the rest of the film. I'm like wow, I never noticed some of this stuff before. So it definitely is rewarding that way on repeat in uh, for repeat viewings. Yes, I always appreciate a film that rewards you for watching it again and again. I know a lot of people approach rewatching films differently. For me, if I enjoy a film, I'll watch it once a week. I mean, <laughs> it, it doesn't bother me at all. I, I I love cinema so much, and I love exploring story. I love doing what we do on this show and I do it all the time. And so when I rewatch a film, it's because I enjoy the film and I want to know more about it. And I don't really limit myself. I'm going to watch this once a year, once every two years. If I'm in the mood to watch Back to the Future, heck, I'm going to watch Back to the Future and I'll watch it again tomorrow after dinner. And, you know, it doesn't bother me. So I'm looking forward already. I watched this last night. I was kind of hoping to watch it again earlier today, but I didn't get the chance. And so probably in the next couple of days, I'm about to pop in the Matrix again so I can uh, especially after today's discussion, explore it some more. Nice, nice. I'm really glad that you love this film. I, I just like with the last film when I'm introducing one of my favorites to you. I'm like, is Chad gonna like it? I don't know. I feel so <laughs> insecure. Uh, but I'm, I'm really glad that you liked it. Well, you know me. I, I love approaching things with open minds and knowing that this is one of your favorites. It, it led me to look at things maybe differently than I would if it was just another film. Yeah. And so uh, I was excited for the opportunity to explore this a little bit deeper. Now, one of the things about the story that I really liked was the idea that the Matrix, what Neo has been searching for, as as we learn, he, he's been searching for it. And his name is not even Neo. He's Thomas Anderson and he works in a software company or whatever. Right, right. But he's been searching for the Matrix and come to find out the Matrix wasn't something new. It was not reality. You know, I like the idea that it's what he was living in the entire time. It, you feel it when you go to work, when you go to school, when you go to church, when you pay your taxes. Exactly. Um, And so in one sense, Neo is his real name because that's the persona that he is using in the actual real world outside of the Matrix. Right. You know, I think the Matrix, ahead of watching this movie, the Matrix to me was maybe like something like the grid in Tron, where it's this other destination where you're maybe downloaded into some sort of computer. That's just sort of the idea that the Matrix brings to mind. And that's sort of what it is, except here, that's where he starts out and he has to escape from it. And I, I just sort of like that twist on the the searching for a different reality. 
Yeah, yeah, and it's it's so much more than just like the grid from Tron where people enter it, you know, a few people have entered it willingly or, you know, wh- whatever stuff like that. This is a complete reversal like you say. And and it's let's I love the line from Morpheus. It's like as he's going the part of the quote that I just mentioned, he goes on to say, "It is the world that has been pulled over your eyes." And so it really is a sort of thing if you've never been awake before and you're living in this simulated dream world created by computers, and you might instinctively know something is off, but you wouldn't even know what. You don't know anything else. And that's what's so great about The Matrix and the whole concept that we see here in this film. Yeah, and going along with the introduction of The Matrix as the the sort of false reality, I love the idea that once they understood that it was a false reality, that they could bend that false reality. And I, I love that explanation behind the slow motion and behind the, the enhanced superhuman abilities is that they were able to change the will, the reality, because of their awareness that the fact that it isn't real. And so that the first time that's sort of explored is when they're going to visit the Oracle and Neo is there and the child is bending the spoon and he takes a chance at it because, hey, the spoon's not real, so that means I can do with it as I please because it doesn't really exist. Yeah, there is no spoon. I'm, I'm sure you've heard me say there is no spoon, right? And or you probably heard it in popular culture. I probably have, yeah. It's so iconic. There is no spoon. And then on this same or opposite side of the coin, maybe, I really like the idea that you can still die in the Matrix. Oh, sure. That's sort of a, a twist on maybe the dream world in Inception, where in most circumstances in a dream, if you got shot or you died in some way, you just woke up. Here, because your mind perceives it as actual death and as actual pain and actual injuries, it still processes that in the real world as if they were real injuries and you can die from it. I, I think that's fascinating. Um the, the exact quote is something like, uh, the body can't live without the mind. And I, I think that's a really cool way to approach that concept. Yeah, yeah. Well, they have to, if for no other reason than just because you have to have stakes in the story. And if you can't die in the Matrix, then what's the point? Right. Um, but, but it does make sense, too, because the mind does have a lot of power over the body. Um, and if the mind decides that you're dead, um, if, you, if the mind decides it's not going to live anymore, well, your body won't survive without the mind. Um, so it, it, you know, it's yes, it's necessary to create stakes, but it also makes sense. I mean, it it just makes sense. What else about the story do you have, TJ? Kind of what I boil it down to is I have a few favorite scenes. Although again, like most of this movie is just so so doggone compelling and so you know such good cinematography. I really like the, uh, the in the very beginning of the film that when uh, Trinity has escaped from the building and she's about to rush to the phone that's ringing. And then we see the truck kind of slide around. And then there, the, the shot that I love is we cut to this this phone ringing, and it's a pretty close-up of the phone. And then without moving the camera, nothing in the frame moves, but the focus, you know, the lens focuses from – the focal point shifts from the phone to Trinity. Like I love that scene. It is such good cinematography. Right. But, but okay, so from that aside, um, some of my favorite scenes are like, like Neo's training uh, when he's learning – uh, you know, they've, they've downloaded all the stuff into his mind, but now he not, has to learn how to use it in the construct, right? Um, and they're, you know, they're training him and, and he's fighting with Morpheus and Morpheus, you know, basically kicks the crap out of him. And, you know, <laughs> Neo's like, you're faster, you're stronger. I don't, I can't. Morpheus is like, uh, do you believe that my being stronger or faster has anything to do with my muscles in this place? Do you think that's air you're breathing now? <laughs> like I love that scene. I don't know. It's just so compelling. I just I love the heck out of that scene. Right. And speaking of how this movie influences others, that 
watching that scene immediately made me think of Big Hero 6 from Disney Animation because that that's how Hero trains Baymax is he downloads kung fu moves or whatever into Baymax's little microchip. Mm. And so he has a similar scene where he's in the garage and Hero is shouting out these different kung fu moves and Baymax executes <laughs> them without really knowing what he's doing. It's just sort of instinct. It's like he becomes Jason Bourne. Right, right. And the same thing happens here with Neo. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, and then, uh, you know, similarly to Neo's training uh, in the simulation, uh, the subway fight is pretty iconic, it, or at least to me, it's one of the standout scenes where you're seeing, at first, it seems like Agent Smith is probably going to win, and then, you know, Neo does get some mastery over him, but then Smith, it looks like he's going to win again, but then, you know, like he, you know, Neo subverts it all, and he's, my name is Neo, you know, and he just... I don't know. I, I really just love the subway fight scene. It, it's just such a great scene. So well choreographed. And, that you know, overall, the choreography in this film, and unfortunately, the rest of the Matrix films didn't live up to this one in terms of choreography. But but the choreography in this film, like, is just it's so easy to follow, but you never feel like it's because nothing's going on. So, yeah, I, I love that uh, just as much as Neo's training, probably. Cool. I, I really like the Oracle scene. Yes, that's on my list, too. Because... The intertwining of their lives because of the Oracle and what she has said. You know, I have more to say about the Oracle when we talk about her in the character section. But here we learn that Morpheus was told that he would find the one. Mm -hmm. Trinity was told that she would fall in love with the one. But Neo was told he's not the one in order to essentially make him the one. Exactly. And so these three characters and others, of course, as well, are all intertwined based on the truth or whatever you want to call it that was revealed to them through the Oracle. And like I said, I don't want to talk too much about the Oracle now because I have more to say about her later. But um, that scene was really cool seeing how these characters' lives have sort of been intertwined just because of what has been revealed to them. Yeah, and there's implications there that, you know, and I, I, I trash talk the other two films in this franchise, but there's some good stuff in them, too. And this, you know, the whole st- everything with the Oracle sets up stuff that we're going to get to later in the film franchise. And, you know, there's there's questions that we have there. I remember having these questions even, you know, before I saw the other two films, like, OK, so she knows all these things or she's setting them up. Is this is she, you know, is she actually a good guy? Like, we don't know. You know, there's questions there. Uh-huh. At least uh, to my mind, there was. And, and those questions, you know, become things that we need to explore in, in later films. And so, you know, there, there's not too much in this film that's like hanging. But you do get the sensation. It's like there's more stories to tell in this world, you know. Um, but, yeah, I, I really love meeting the Oracle and I love her nonchalant uh just the way that she approaches Neo, when you walk out that door, you'll remember you don't believe in this fate crap, you know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, any other scenes, TJ? Well, the opening scene with Trinity, but I've kind of already talked about that. Uh-huh. And it's hard to pick and choose scenes in this film just because it's so well done. Like, there's no wasted scenes in this film. Everything is so good. Uh, but, but yeah, the subway fight and Neo's training are really standout scenes to me. Um, yeah, I, that's pretty much it for me on that. I'll say one more. Um, so much of this, the action scenes in particular are things that we saw maybe earlier introduced. So we have the the wall running that's introduced at the beginning of the film that's brought back later. And then mm-hmm. at one point we see the bullet dodging that's brought back later. And then finally, the very last shot of the film is Neo flying off. And it's like this entirely new thing. He can fly? Like, what What the heck? So he, it's, it's just sense. cool seeing... Yeah, it's cool seeing how at the end of the film, he's come to this point where he has 
mastered his perception of reality to the point that he is able to bend it into flight. And it's just, it's cool that, that that's the closing shot of the film where nobody's flown up to this point, but here's Neo and he's flying off into the credits. Oh, speaking of Neo's mastery over the Matrix, I do remember one other scene that is really compelling that I really like is, is obviously the climactic scene where Neo, um, spoilers, big, major, major plot spoilers here. We can talk about that, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Neo is dead, right? And he's, you know, but but he can't be dead. Really? Can, is he dead? Can he be dead? And of course, he's, you know, because he has mastery over the Matrix and he's just figured this out, like he basically in the Matrix comes back to life, right? And then like from that point on, he has mastery over the Matrix. And, you know, like Agent Smith comes and he's so angry and Neo is just, you can see just effortlessly. Agent Smith has nothing on him anymore. And it just, I, I love that. I mean, it, and the, the music kind of swells into that and it just, it's really, it, it's awesome. Can you tell I love this film? <laughs> I can tell, TJ. And uh, I just feel the need to keep pointing out these similarities between The Matrix and other films because it, it's it's really cool to trace back the origin of some of these story elements. Right. In the Lego movie from 2014, Emmett goes through a sort of similar transformation where he goes through much of the film believing that, or he's told that he's the one, and then he realizes, you know, I'm probably not the one. I'm not the special. And then at the end of the film, at the climactic fight sequence, he goes back into the Lego world and all of a sudden he he is a master builder and he perceives his reality in its minute pieces and is able to build things together. And so it's, it's almost a straight... I was going to say, that's almost a direct lift from The Matrix. Right. That's a better way to put it. Direct lift. I was about to say rip off, but I, I, that's too negative because I love the Lego movie. Yeah. No, the Lego movie is good. And, and, and some of it was meant to be uh, parody. And this is it wasn't so much parody as homage in the Lego movie or just like, you know, the origins of that story point maybe were inspired by The Matrix. So it's not it's not point for point like The Matrix, but but it's a pretty much a lift, you know. Yeah. So just just another cool similarity. Now let's talk about characters a little bit. What about Neo? What do you like about Keanu Reeves as Neo? <laughs> well, I feel like Keanu Reeves was born to play this role and, and maybe only this role, but, <laughs> but, but but he does so well here. Like it works so well. Um, and obviously Neo is the central focus of this film. I like all the, of our good guys, but Neo is the one who grows the most throughout the course of the film. He has, he obviously, the character growth is focused on him. He goes from this cowardly computer hacker who can barely, you know, get done what he needs. Like, he can't, he can't even cross this scaffolding to get to the roof in order to escape, you know, when we start out. And, and then it comes to, it comes down to the brass tacks. You know, we got to figure out what are we going to do and, uh, you know, Morpheus is going to die. We're going to pull the plug. And Neo's like, no, I'm making a choice. I'm going to sacrifice myself uh, so that he can live. And that's that's what, you know, what our character grows into. So he obviously has the most growth throughout the course of the film. Um, so he's um, and I, I guess he's my favorite. Um, I mean, because he is the primary focus of the film. But I hate playing favorites because I love Trinity, too. Um, and I was noticing, and I've noticed this before, I, I wish that she'd had more, you know, more scenes like the opening scene or more that showed her character. But obviously, she's a very compelling character. And when she does start off as this, you know, badass woman, but then she, we see the softer side of her as we go along and that she's capable of, of loving Neo and also capable of standing up to him. And she's, you know, here's what I believe, you know. I believe that I am the ranking officer. I believe that I love Mor Morpheus as much or more than you do and I believe that I'm going with you and I believe that if you don't like it you can go to hell you know <laughs> but yet yet we see that she's doing that from a place of tenderness and love for her crewmates and for Neo 
Um, so I love Trinity uh, just as much as, as Neo, probably. I know that's probably cliche because uh, that they're the two primary characters of the film. But there you go. And then distant, not, not too distant uh, from them is, of course, Morpheus, who uh, has a great introduction into this film the first time we see him when he turns around uh, from the wall, the wall that he's facing when Neo walks in. And he has those cool clip-on sunglasses, you know, um, and the long flowing coat. He probably has the least character growth in the film. In fact, I don't think he grows as a character at all. That comes in the later films. But he he is cool. You know? Yeah, he is. <laughs> and he's probably the most iconic, maybe, maybe him and uh, Agent Smith, the most iconic characters from this movie. As far as if you told somebody The Matrix and they pictured maybe a poster or something, they would probably see Morpheus or they would see Agent Smith because they're, they're just sort of like the... the poster children for this series they, they yes. are they are the, the the faces of these two sides of the coin yes now for me neo i think what was so interesting about him is that he's interesting not because he doubted reality it was because he he sort of thirsted for more knowledge he he wanted to know more you want he was asking questions and he was wanting to know the truth and so i, I think there's a cool contrast between doubting which I don't really think it's what he does here. It's it's more just the exploration of truth. And uh, as he learns more truth and gains more knowledge, he's able to gain confidence in himself. Like you were talking about, he starts off and he's sort of just this typical, the, the stereotypical nerd, maybe, or computer programmer. Or, you know, there, there's sort of like a trope where the, the nerdy computer kid, uh, weak, kind of not all that great with the girls, however you want to think about it. Sure, sure. But by the end of the film, he's in such a different place than he was at the start. And it's because he's sought out knowledge and has gained knowledge and has grown from it. Yeah, he's he's definitely the most compelling and certainly the focus is on him. Uh -huh. And talking about Trinity as well, they sort of have opposite arcs. You, you talked about this too. At the start of the film, Trinity's the badass. At the end of the film, Neo is. Now, that doesn't make Trinity any less of one by the end, but they sort of go in opposite arcs where as Neo grows more hardcore, Trinity reveals her more human tendencies because the introduction to Trinity, she's jumping off walls, she's dodging bullets, she's jumping off rooftops. So when we first see her, we're like, wow, this is some superhuman. I don't know what she is. I don't know if she's human or not, but... Eventually, we see the, the more human side of her when she does fall for Neo and she does make the sacrifices to put herself in danger in order to rescue Morpheus and others. And yeah, they, they have that sort of opposite arc. And of course, you can't talk about, you know, favorite characters without talking about Agent Smith. And believe it or not, like he, um, for better or worse, he has more character gr growth, you want to call it, or or revelation than Morpheus does. Where he he goes, you know, obviously from uh, uh, one, he goes from this agent who's part of the system to we find out he's wanting to get out of the Matrix, and and that's what motivates him as a character and as a sentient program. You know, he's of course learning and growing and becoming something, and so that's what's driving him. Uh, which, which was, uh, you know, see, he wasn't just a faceless, you know, no motivations, uh, enemy computer program thing. You know, he he was a well-rounded character. 
and I think Hugo Weaving was probably born to play this role too. Yeah, probably. <laughs> because because one of my problems, like I love Hugo Weaving here, and I hated Hugo Weaving in in uh, Lord of the Rings up until like the, toward the end of Return of the King. I didn't like Hugo Weaving at all as Elrond, and it's because I kept seeing Agent Smith. <laughs> I kept expecting him to say to end his sentences with Mister Anderson, you know, in, in the Lord of the Rings. So, but but here he does such a good job of conveying, you know, this this seething kind of hatred for everything human and it just keeps leaking out of him you know more and more as the film goes on and he just the, the way he phrases everything and the way he talks is so uh, iconic to the character he's like we've had our eye on you for some time you know <laughs> just, it, he's just <laughs> I actually wrote that down as well i mean he, he he does have this sort of slow and methodical uh line of speech and he, he's just a, a cool villain. He, he enunciates things weird. <laughs> yes. Almost Shatner-like. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a weird character quirk. But at the same time, what I think makes him really interesting is that he is trying to sort of escape from his duties as a protector of the Matrix or whatever you want to call him. And it sets up this notion of, you know, m- the machines initially rebelled against humans and took over. And now we're at this point where Agent Smith, you could call him a machine. He's, he's part of a greater machine, but he is now rebelling against the machine because he wants to, to sort of escape into his own um, split off from his responsibility. Yes, yes. He doesn't want to protect the Matrix anymore. Right. And so it, it's, it's the question of a constant state of rebellion, right? As long as there's a higher power and the people below seek justice or however you want to picture that, they are going to rebel. And so here we have the machine rebelling against the machine who rebelled against the humans. And I just think that's it's it's an interesting circle. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And he he goes from this arc of the smooth, controlled kind of, uh, you know, I'm in control of the situation and he becomes increasingly agitated and angry, you know, and eventually he's like, he's he's shaking, you know, Morpheus by the shoulders and you, the key is in your head, my key, I need to get get it out of there, you know, and, and he just, he, he goes through this journey of becoming like, and ultimately that's kind of what defeats him is he could have, he could have ran when Neo came back to life and, and he chose instead to confront Neo again. And uh, that was ultimately was his uh, undoing. For me, just speaking of Morpheus real quickly, I I think what was most compelling about Morpheus' character, you're right, he doesn't really have necessarily a lot of growth, but I think that's sort of the draw of him. He has this unwavering belief in the fact that Neo is the one, and everything he does in this movie focuses around his belief, his constant belief that Neo is the one who's going to protect them and is going to rid them of the Matrix and is going to save mankind. Mm -hmm. And I mean, I think that's just almost as compelling as having some sort of actual character growth. He is firm in his stance and he's not going to waver. And he's that informs every decision he makes in this movie, every sacrifice he makes. He almost dies because he believes that Neo was the one and his uh, capture uh, helped Neo to escape. And so I, I think that that's really interesting. Yeah, and there's certainly something to be said for that. Now, uh, I, I did say I had more to talk about the Oracle. And uh, for the Oracle, I thought she tells Neo that he is not the one. And, you know, this is coming from the perspective of somebody who hasn't seen the sequels, who knows nothing of the sequels. So maybe this is kind of stuff is revealed in the sequels. But for me, I don't really know what to think. Because at the end of the film, you sort of believe, okay, obviously Neo's the one. Even though the Oracle, who ha- is presented as this, this character who only speaks the truth and 
all of her predictions or prophecies or whatever you want to call them come true. But she says that he's not the one. And at the end of the film, it almost seems that nobody but Neo could be the one. And so I don't know how that progresses in future films, but it gave me the thought that maybe she's a character that doesn't speak truth, but she creates it, ah. right? So I mentioned earlier, what what she tells Neo is that he's not the one. And then by telling him that he's not the one and that he's going to have this decision to make, whether it's going to be his life or Morpheus' life, that decision that he makes informs his decisions later and sort of turns him into the one. Does that make sense? Absolutely. And and that's interesting that you're picking up on these things that it took me longer to pick up on. Like, I didn't <laughs> know what to think of the Oracle going into the second film. And it becomes more clear. And certainly by the third film, it becomes very clear what's happening there. But the key scene for you to remember, I don't want to reveal too much. The key scene for you to keep in mind is when Neo breaks the vase. And she, right before he did, she said, don't worry about the vase. And then he breaks the vase and she goes, that vase. And then um, she, and, and Neo goes, how did you know I was going to do that? And she goes, ah, what's really going to bake your noodle is would you still have done it if I hadn't said anything? Right, right. So that, that is the key to unlocking the oracle. Um, and there's some pretty interesting stuff that happens there um, and some, some cool ways to explain what seems like possibly mysticism Moving forward in the franchise maybe isn't such mysticism. Uh, that, that, that's what I'll say about that. Uh, but the Oracle, uh, she, she's, she's definitely a great addition to this film. Strategically placed, uh, expertly cast. Um, just uh, everything about that scene is just so so much fun. Uh, it's you know obviously this actor is just enjoying chewing up the scenery here. You know just the the whole shtick she's doing with baking the cookie and being the one is like being in love. You just know it. You know, <laughs> uh-huh. and, and and she's definitely not sort of what we sort of pictured in our head when we were told that there was going to be some sort of oracle. We didn't oh, no. picture this this lady in the kitchen baking cookies. We we pictured maybe <laughs> something a little bit more on the nose as far as oracles and soothsayers kind of that that kind of profession goes. You know, there's some stigmas attached to that title, and she's very opposite of any of those stigmas. And so uh, she's a cool character in that sense, both in how she's presented, but also how maybe she's not telling the truth, but like I said, she's creating it. She's more of an arbiter of truth rather than a communicator of it. Mm, mm-hmm. Perhaps so. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I'm, you've got me intrigued. I'm going to have to keep watching now. I, I do have the trilogy, so I, I will be able to explore that soon. I, I will say that the arc and the way that the Oracle's handled throughout the the three films is really good. Um, I will say that I, I have my quibbles with the other two, but but I, I think that you'll be pleased with the arc that that takes. And and even um, oh, I don't even want to say what one of the disappointing <laughs> things was that maybe wasn't so disappointing. But anyway, we'll see. Well, I, I'll be interested to hear how that goes for you. I probably won't recommend them uh, if I'm on the Cinescope in the future because I have a lot of a lot of critiques of the other two films. But it just this film is the best of the series, and I love it so much. So, <laughs> well, you know, I love talking music and you, I'm sure, have a lot to say about the music considering it's your favorite. So let's talk about it. What what do you like about the music here? So I do like the music. Interestingly, as much as this is my favorite film, um, I, 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 I don't feel like the music is the most iconic. Like I probably love stuff like uh, James Horner's Star Trek score more. But that said, I think the music is really good. And the opening cue over the... Uh, you know, as the logos come on screen and it's pretty iconic, like everybody recognizes that as the Matrix and 
Um, and 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 it does a really good job. And all the entire opening musical sequence throughout Trinity's you know opening scene is just it builds up to this great recognizable thematic thing going on. So I really love the opening, and you know Don Davis did a fantastic job there. Um, and then I thought that he really gave us something different and and new, but still feels like the Matrix when we got to the hotel ambush. Uh, where they change, they remove the window, you know, they change the matrix and remove the windows from the hotel and that sort of thing. So, so all the music leading up to that is really great. Um, and then, of course, you get to the um, anything is possible. It's kind of the climactic uh, musical cue when Neo realizes that he is the one, and he can, you know, and and that is such a great uh, cue as well. Right. I I wrote that on that track specifically because it it is a standout. It's a standout on the whole album. It's a a sort of mix of everything that we've heard so far up to that point. And it ends in this really awesome swell. Yeah, it's very triumphant. Yeah, into sort of nothingness. Like the ending is very triumphant. That's a great word. So yeah, all the, um, you know, the... The soundtrack, or or I don't know what you call it, the the more instrumental uh, stuff, not the instrumental stuff, but the the actual songs in the you know from the various artists. I could take those or leave them, but but Don Davis, you know, the actual soundtrack, the movie cinematic score is is really good. I didn't get the chance to listen to the soundtrack until like right as I was preparing to start the show tonight, and so I, I've listened through a lot of it, um, but I haven't been able to really focus on it just yet. So. I watched the movie last night and earlier today I started my notes and the first thing I wrote was that it was a good mix of electronic and orchestral. But then listening to it right before the show, I realized, well, there's not really that much electronic in this score. No, it's it's pretty orchestral. Yeah. And I, I think that's really cool. I think probably the electronic is mostly in the sound design kind of stuff. Yeah, but but there's a way that that he takes this orchestral feel, you know, the, the or the orchestral instrumentation and makes it feel like it belongs in this world. And and he does a really great job like specifically it's not as great to listen to as a soundtrack, but it works really well in the film, uh, the, the kind of the horror aspect of in the first act where, you know, the the, the bug and everything and, the, and Trinity's pulling that out with the thing and like that music is really uh um, all, all that stuff is really very horror-esque and, and works really well there, too. Yeah, there's a, a good mix of genre in this the score. There's the, the horror elements you just mentioned. There's some cool action-adventure kind of stuff. There's this really triumphant sort of heroic music and motifs at the end. And uh, the, the tracks that I did listen to, there are some ideas of sort of reflection. You know, there's lots of reflections in this movie outside of the music. Uh, When Morpheus introduces the red and the blue pill, you see there's this really great shot where you see the red pill in one lens (laughs) and you see the blue pill in one lens. Iconic, uh, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's so cool. And I think that Don Davis was trying to emulate the idea of reflection because that's not the only instance of reflection that you see in the film, but he emulates that in his score. And so there's some repeating motifs that you hear every now and then where I, I don't know. It just sort of evokes the image of a mirror in your head because it's backwards, forwards, however you want to think about it. It's sort of introspection to a point. And I, I was really glad listening to this that they didn't go an all electronic route because I think electronics are a really easy way to date your film. Oh, and yes. So, I mean, like, look at Tron from the 80s versus yes. Tron Legacy. Tron Legacy is going to hold up so much better. Exactly, because... Even though there are some electronic aspects to that score, it's primarily orchestral. And Daft Punk's influence is clearly there, but it's definitely not anything like Wendy Carlos's score for the original Tron, which was great at its time. And it, it works for the film, but it also dates the film right. uh, extremely. And so I'm glad they didn't go that route with uh, this one. I think Mr. Davis going the more orchestral 
route with his score was a, a wise choice and it, it really accompanies the film really well. Yeah. And then um, I'm not quite sure. It's more woven throughout and it rears its head here and there. I'm not quite sure where to point you, but you'll hear it, especially if you watch the film again, looking for it. Trinity has a theme and it's subtle, but it's there. And that uh, Don Davis will use that to uh, jerk a few tears out of our eyes later in the next couple of films. Um, and so he he winds up using Trinity's theme to great effect throughout the course of the films uh, because Trinity becomes even more important to the story as as we go. So, yeah, I think that he did a really fantastic job. And obviously Neo's theme and the Matrix theme and all that stuff is just there's really good stuff there. Yeah. And last thing I'll say about the music is this whole podcast, we've been talking about how the Matrix influenced others. And I think that's even apparent in the music in the first track. There were some I, I heard some stuff that sounded like Inception. Mm. And I think that was. I don't know, maybe uh, Hans Zimmer and Chris Nolan quoting that sort of intentionally, the idea of these big brassy sounds, uh, these big brassy hits or whatever. Well, I would say that The Matrix influenced Inception in a lot of ways. (laughs) Right. Yeah, yeah. I (laughs) mean, for uh, sure. And I'm sure that's more apparent to you now having seen The Matrix. Yes. And I, I definitely heard it in the music as well. I think that's really cool. Okay, let's talk about the takeaways of the film, the sort of cultural relevance. What Do you have anything in, as far as that goes? Well, this film asks some interesting questions. I don't know if it answers them well or has good answers, but it certainly asks questions. Uh, like, uh, who has it better? Um, those who live in ignorance and they just live in the matrix and they go about their lives and they don't know the difference. Uh, or is it better to know the truth and to fight for your life and to die fighting even? Um, like which which is better? It, it, it asks the question, right? And then you've got uh, you've got Cipher who who has decided that the better way is to betray your friends and to get them to wipe his memory and put him back in the matrix. Like, I'm sorry, big spoilers, uh, but but like that's what uh, that's what he wants, and uh, that's what the route he's decided to go. And of course, he's the bad guy. So I think the the film is answering that question by saying, well, obviously our heroes are the ones who know the truth and who fight for the truth, no matter how hard life may be. Um, so that that's kind of a pervasive theme uh, or story, you know, arc throughout this film is is asking that question. And you know, Neo asks the question of Morpheus when he's right after he throws up, finding out what the Matrix is, you know, in that big intense scene, oh, he's gonna pop. Uh, <laughs> um, so then he asks the question of uh, Morpheus, I can't, I can't go back, can I? You know, and then Morpheus is like, well, if you could, would you? Um, so that, that's really one of the questions this film is asking. And then, you know, you've got the whole de- destiny or free will or fate, like that's all tied up in there with that too. So that, that's, I would say that's kind of the theme of this film. Yeah. And I, I would expand that to just saying asking questions in general. Like I said, that was something about Neo that really drew me in right off the bat was that he was asking questions. He was exploring for truth and the desire to learn more and the idea of looking inside and looking around for truth. It's sort of prevalent in another dystopian film that I've actually talked with you about before, Oblivion, uh, which Mm, stars Tom Cruise, Joseph Kaczynski. Mm -hmm. And I love that film, too, because it's all about asking questions and not settling for what you know now, but seeking to know more and to learn more. And I I love that theme when it's present in any movie. And I think it's done really, really well here. And the, the hero learns that the life he knew was a lie. So he sets out for truth. And that's just a a great story arc and character arc for me. I always enjoy watching that. Yeah. And I think the the movie also t- kind of makes the point uh, for better, you know, I mean, it is what it is, but, you know, people in general, um, whether they admit it or not, they tend to prefer 
to have the wool kind of pulled over their eyes. I mean, at least the people in the Matrix, they don't want to know, they're not ready to know what the Matrix is, how it's enslaved them. They just want to live their lives. Uh-huh. And and that's I think we see that uh, a lot in, in, you know, where you think you've got this awesome thing, this, this truth or whatever it is, and, and nobody cares, you know. <laughs> the, the world is a cr- cruel place, Chad. Nobody cares. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the idea of belief in the unknown and in the unclear as well. We see that in Morpheus, as we talked about, uh, where because of what the Oracle has told him and because of his experience and what he's seen and what he's learned, he believes that Neo is the one. And nothing shakes his faith in that. Even when at first maybe Neo doesn't show the the aptitude that they were hoping maybe when he, he's jumping across the the gap between buildings or whatever <laughs> but still he he's unwavering in that belief and then it goes on to explore the the belief in oneself or one's abilities you know that's presented in neo as he masters his perception of reality mm-hmm. and is able to bend it around him and is able to take advantage of uh the villain and ultimately defeat him and so uh i i really like that idea of belief being a strong theme here. Yeah, yeah, I agree. And lastly, I would say the the idea of rebellion against what is wrong. And ultimately, I would say that's probably why Neo takes the red pill instead of the blue is because this is the truth. Humans are oppressed, humans are enslaved, and he can't stand by knowing that that is the truth. Right. And that's now that he knows the truth, he doesn't want to not know it. He doesn't want to unknow something so important to reality. And so ignorance was not bliss for him. No, no. And so he, he chose truth. And that that goes back to belief and asking questions. And I, the idea that even though it sort of inconveniences him because he was relatively, I wouldn't say happy with his life, but he was living it. He was making his due. But now he's doing something that's ultimately going to be so much more fulfilling because he's fighting for those who can't fight for themselves. Mm-hmm. Anything else? Uh, I think that covers it for me. Excellent. Uh, what about final thoughts for the film? Uh, man, I think I've covered everything. Just that it is a, a really great film. It's kind of shaped the way – because it was one of the first films I watched get, kind of getting into films earlier on uh, back in the early 2000s. And it's kind of shaped the way I view film. Uh, I, I fell in love with many of the techniques that were used in this film. I thought it was a great blend of uh, using new and modern CGI techniques but not overusing them, which they started to do later in, the, in this trilogy. But in this film, I felt like the balance was just right. And they they had a lot of practical effects that they made look digital and just all kinds of good stuff going on that way. It's a great story. Uh, it really pulls you in and it gives you characters to love and to cheer for. Uh, and villains to hate. So it's a classic good good versus evil story in that way too. Um, so yeah, I just, I really love this film and I think that I wish that everybody would watch it and love it like I do. Yeah, I think this is a good introductory film for people who are wanting to explore cinema a little bit more because this is a movie that's really easy to just go and watch, pop a bag of popcorn and enjoy the sci-fi and the action elements of it. But if you do explore the the more cinematic aspects of it and cinematic in terms of story, in terms of, cinematography in terms of action shooting i mean anything you can think of this film presents on sort of next level beyond just popcorn flick level and so opening your eyes to that opening your mind to that and just sort of acknowledging wow they did this and this is why they did this and this is how they accomplished doing this and it's a it's a good introductory film for that and uh, i mean aside from that it is just a fun action flick but there's surprising depth with that as well. Yeah, yeah. It kind of works on both levels. 
Yeah, and it's definitely more heft than you would maybe expect from a film like this. But I think that that benefits it all the more because it, it adds on another layer to it. For sure. And I'm, I'm looking forward to going back and watching it again and then going on and watching the next in the series. Yeah, yeah, I'll be interested to uh, to pick your brain once you've seen them all and uh, see what you see what you think. <laughs> okay, we'll do. Um, and that is the end of the official fifteenth episode of Cinescope. Thanks again for joining me, TJ. Oh, it was my pleasure to be here. Love talking about this film. Yes, and I, I'm glad you finally got me in to watch it. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, I, I'd love to go back to the good old days of Movie Bite and see if I can find the first mention of you criticizing me, maybe for not for not seeing this earlier. It was probably so, episode fifty when you joined me as co-host. It probably was. I wouldn't be surprised <laughs> at all. Contact for the show: Facebook.com/slash/CinescopePodcast and at CinescopePod on Twitter. Please go to iTunes, take a couple minutes out of your day, rate and review, and also subscribe. Just click the button, and then you can ignore iTunes for the rest of your life. It doesn't matter. Um, email. <laughs> Email feedback ideas to thecinescopepodcast at gmail.com. And if you're interested in co-hosting, let me know what some of your favorite movies are. We'll try and fit you in sometime because I'd love to talk about any any film that you think is a favorite. I would love to talk about it. TJ, where can people find you online? Well, if you want to keep uh, conversating with me, I love making up words. Uh, if you want to keep going uh, with this conversation with me, talk to me about The Matrix, uh, get me to take the red pill. You can do all that on Twitter. That's the best place to keep up with me. I am TJ Draper Pro. If you want to follow uh, some of the other podcasts and, and work that I do in that way, you can go to nightowl.fm and uh, keep up with my show there, which Chad even occasionally appears on. And uh, yeah, that's those are the places to find me. Great. And there will definitely be links to Night Owl and to Retake in the show notes. So you can go check out TJ's stuff and listen to it because I, I for one, I had been holding on to old episodes of Movie Bite after I had left because I was like, <laughs> I don't want this to be over yet. But now it sort of lives on and has new life in it. And so I can go back to those episodes and I can listen to those and just continue enjoying Retake. Well, you know, I didn't want to disappoint you, Chad. That's why we started Night Owl. Well, thank you very much, TJ. I appreciate it. <laughs> uh, the best place to find me is at Chadadada on Twitter. That is C-H-A-D-A-D-A-D-A and on Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins. And all the show notes, all the contact information can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. That's all for this week. Thanks again, TJ. Oh, uh, thank you, Chad, for watching this movie and for sharing enthusiasm with me about it. Definitely. And thank you, everyone, for listening to episode 15. I'm Chad Hopkins. This was Cinescope, and we'll be back next week with episode 16. Have fun and celebrate movies. Movies.